I'm Greg, and you're listening to Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Hey, Polly. What's going on? Nothing much. Getting ready for today? Yeah. Who we got today? So I met our ho- our um, our guest today back at the Salve Walk. Oh, um, yeah. And I'm ashamed to admit that I did not know about this organization, but once it caught my ear, it was, I knew that we had to have them on. Oh, now that you're saying that, I totally remember him there. Yeah, it was Yep. Ryan, Ryan Loisel from, he's our program director from Friendsway. So we have them on today. All right. And nice. What do they, what do they do at Friendsway? This organization is a grief, a youth grief bereavement center, which Really? I did not know existed. Me neither. And I think it's fascinating that they are focused on the youth. I think that a lot of time, you know, you have um, the adults. Mm-hmm. Most workplaces have the bereavement time, but we hardly ever think about the kids. I think We're that this organization more because they're still working through how to deal with feelings and exactly. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So yeah, I met him at the uh, at the walk for Salve, and you know we've been in touch, and I'm glad that we can get him scheduled to be on here to tell us a little more about Friends Way. Good, awesome. All right. Without further ado, today joining us in our totally preventable podcast, we have Ryan Loisel, program director of Friends Way. Ryan, how are you? That's not a question I often get, but right, <laughs> I'm doing great today. <laughs> thanks for thanks for having us. <laughs> I always tell people that you know we're not trying to stump them, but it looks like hey, my first question today, I did right. it. You stumped them. <laughs> so, uh, Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I've uh, been a social worker for over 20 years. I've uh, been a part of Friends Wave equally as long, um, and love the work that we're doing here in Rhode Island as well as uh, southeastern New England to help kids and teens process a death. Awesome. Um, so can you tell us a little more about Friends Way and what you do there? Absolutely. So at Friends Way, we're the only children's bereavement center here in Rhode Island, um, which is a big undertaking given that there are uh, populations and places in Rhode Island that may not get to us in Warwick. Mm-hmm. We provide a peer-based support group, so meaning that our volunteers are our lead facilitators. And the benefit of the peer group is to align kids and teens with each other that have gone through something similar so that they're not feeling isolated in their grief. And the caregiver adult component is absolutely crucial to our whole program. So the adults also get to be to say, you're not the only one going through your eight-year-old sleeping in your bed, or you know, your kids asking questions about going to the cemetery, like how do I answer those? So everybody gets to normalize the experience that someone has gone through something very similar. Now, can you tell us, you, you said it was, a bereavement center. Can you tell us a little more about what is a bereavement center? Absolutely. So we know that everybody is going through grief. You know, when you when you no longer have something, that's that's a loss. That's that's you experiencing grief. Um, what we do at Friends Women is we're working with families after a death has happened. 
So that's the qualifying factor to have participants be a part of our program, that there's a death loss that happened and that we, you know, have you come and, you know, we do an intake with all of our families. So one of the important things to certainly note is that we're not a clinical service. We're not designed to work with families immediately after a death. We certainly receive phone calls. You know, my husband died last week and I've got to tell my five-year-old daughter that daddy's not coming home. Can you help me, you know, share and talk about what I should do and, and not do, et cetera. We're happy to do that. We just wouldn't have that family join our groups at this juncture with that immediacy, given that their feelings are so raw that they may be looking for clinical services. So they may seek outpatient services or another group that can deal with therapy. And then, you know, several weeks, several months down the road, or even sometimes several years, because grief's not on a timeline, their grief may manifest at different ages and stages. So primarily working with a lot of moms, a lot of females who are reaching out for help for their kids or grandkids, as most of the time, about 65% of the time, it's the death of their father that has impacted the family. Um, is Friends Way referral-based? Can anyone just call you? Do they need a different pathway to get to you? No, I mean, there's no formal referral process. I mean, we'll get referrals from pediatricians offices or DCYF or Hasbro or, or Bradley or private therapist. I mean, the family can self-refer they can call us up and we're always curious to know where our referrals are coming from. And you know, schools tend to be our biggest referral sources. So we may have a school that reaches out to say, hey, Ryan, can I run a family by you? Do you think you can help this family? It's been you know six months since the death. This is the situation. Okay, great, I'll, I'll have mom call you. And then you know, again, we, we'll meet with the family in our, in our office to show them the building, get to know everybody, have them ask us questions, see the space, you know, share a bit more about who they are, share about who the person was that who that has died, so that we get a, a, a picture to figure out if they're appropriate for group. Um, so I have another question. I don't want it to seem judgmental, so lightly, <laughs> but so um, why more moms reaching out to you than dads? Are more dads passing away? Are dads just not aware of the service? I think it's probably both of those things and, you know, others that it's hard to, it's hard to say, but what we see here in Rhode Island for, I say the national trend is very similar because we're connected with other children's grief centers throughout the country. And they kind of share the same things. I think A, moms typically will reach out because they want help more immediate than let's say dads may. Or again, dads may be so overwhelmed with all the new tasks that they're having to do that they're probably thinking, okay, I got to get my kid, you know, bathed and dressed into school and bring them to doctor's appointments and get them to the dentist, you know, one, every six months. And they may have a different focus and right, certainly depending on the cause of death that has happened, I mean, unfortunately, and we're not alone, uh, we're seeing certainly a rise in overdose and suicide deaths that I think due to the nature of the death, it's more inclined that the father may have died due to 
a suicide or an overdose or you know an accident an accidental death mm. what what was or let me try and rephrase that and even say it. I'm gonna talk about rephrasing. Why the focus on youth and for friends way? Because kids need to know that it's okay to feel the feelings that they're having. Right? I mean, anytime if, if I'm going through something and I feel like I think I'm the only one and this feels weird or I'm uncomfortable feeling this way. I may keep that to myself, right? Or, you know, so one of the big things we want to show that kids can and will do well after the death has happened. Most of the time parents are calling to say, oh my gosh, is my kid scarred for the rest of their life because their father died when they were eight? I mean, obviously a really hard question to answer. Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, without knowing them and knowing what their trajectory is. But one of the biggest, you know, predictors of kids' mental health is how the adults are viewing mental health and if the adults are reaching out and seeking services, mm -hmm. as well as who's in their support system. Do they value, you know, talking to a therapist, talking with their clergy person, talking with, you know, other people to say, I can't do this. I mean, we know asking for help is really, really hard to do. It shows that really vulnerability of, I can't do this on my own. Right. So again, for kids to show that it's okay to still be a kid. Yes, you can be sad that your dad died. You can also celebrate that you scored a goal in soccer and are happy. And it, kids have a hard time sometimes balancing that to say, if I'm happy, does that mean I've forgotten my dad? Right. Right. Both things can be true. Right. And we talk about, you know, all of these things certainly in our in our support groups. That is awesome. So death is a hard topic. And then sometimes the um cause of death it even makes it harder. Um how do you how do you get kids to open up and share? These are these are tough topics. They are. I mean, the intake I say is probably the hardest meeting for the adult as well as the child. It also varies on the age of the kids, right? I was meeting a family the other day that the boys were four and seven and they couldn't wait to find out what was in the building, what they could play with, what was something that like we're upstairs, but what's downstairs, right? It's a lot different. It's hard to make the initial phone call as the adult, right? you're making a phone call, or you're sending an email to say, I heard about your services. I never thought I was going to be in this. We say that the club that nobody wants to belong to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're getting the background information. We're understanding who died, how they died, and certainly what the kid's understanding is. Because a lot of times, especially if it comes from a suicide or an overdose death, the kids may not know the true cause of death. Mm -hmm. So we're gathering all that information and then, you know, we're kind of keeping that tucked in our brain to figure out, okay, when I'm interacting with this five-year-old, I know that it was an overdose. This child knows that daddy's heart stopped working and, but doesn't, but doesn't know any more information than that. So you can't just, you know, launch right into that as soon as you meet this five-year-old to say, okay, so tell me how your daddy died, right? I mean, I've got to be 
that personable person, that warm and welcoming, like, hey, welcome to Friends Way. You know, first off, you need a bathroom. Do you need a bottle of water? Like, grab a seat wherever you're comfortable. And what do you know about this place? And sometimes, you know, the parent has shared a whole bunch. Like, we've looked at your website. My kid knows they begrudgingly don't want to be coming here. Um, you know, they get the hoodie on. They're not really engaging. And then other times they they know why they're there. Like, I want to meet other kids. So I think depending on how it's presented by the parent and guardians, if it's something to say, you know what? This is something I always say that I'm guessing that your mom is a great mom. She's trying to figure out how to be even a better mom so that she can understand your feelings, your needs, now that you've gone through this loss, you know, of dad, of grandpa, of your brother. And, you know, certainly getting to know the kids a little bit, figure out their likes and interests and what do you like to watch on TV or do after school? And, you know, then like, hey, let's talk about your dad. Tell me what he was like. And then it's getting into, can you tell me how you found out your dad died? Hmm. And, you know, have them share and talk about that. And, you know, did you go to the funeral service? So it's this, I say a natural progression of just building a rapport that ideally us as, you know, clinicians, but also humans can do that we're, you know, doing that and building that relationship before we're launching into like, hey, I heard your dad died. How did he die? Hmm. It's like, that's kind of coming off really insensitive. Right. I I have a question, but this it's a two part question. Sure, sure. So is that you telling me to keep quiet? No. Probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah. don't say a word. Um, <laughs> so the first part, do you go along with what the parent has introduced as the the cause of death? Like when you said there was a heart, you know, daddy's heart gave out. And do you stay with that throughout their time with you or do you unveil? And the second part is to go along with that, depending on the age of child, I could see stigma becoming a, a reason why a child wouldn't want to confess that they really, I really know how my parent passed, but I'm going to keep that to myself because I don't want people to look at my mother and my father in a certain way. Sure. I, how much time do you have? I could, I could talk for, you know, for hours just on that piece. Right. So we honor what the parent or guardian has chosen to, to tell their kids at that time, we absolutely will let them know, like, well, not to say that our program as a result, they're going to find out, but just to say, you know, there are some kids that do know more and as other kids are sharing and talking about different things, your child may ask you questions and just to, you know, prepare you for that. And it certainly happens in the adult group where, you know, we've helped, you know, I mean, certainly hundreds of families with that specific conversation to say, I think my child is ready to know a little bit more, but I also need to have, you know, guidance and counsel, you know, from friends way to say, how do I walk, walk down that path? And what information do I give and different things? So we will absolutely never disclose to the child that we know that there's a different way that their person died. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. I mean, that would foil the trust immediately between the parent and child and the parent and, and us. Um, so 
we, you know, I say go with the story that this is the true cause, and then this is what the child knows. And you know, with our volunteer, right? I'm getting all over all over the place, but with our volunteers, like we're introducing that idea to them to say, obviously, this is confidential information. This stays with you and not to be given to the child. This is what the child knows about how dad died. And this is, you know, the, the true cause of death. And then as they're working with them throughout, you know, the many weeks and months, they may say, Johnny knows a little bit more than what mom thinks that he knows, right? And we're not going to run and tell mom like, hey, Johnny knows, but we, you know, might bring that topic up in the adult group to say, you know, just curious, has, has anybody ever revisited, you know, the the question with their kids to be like, you know, do you have any more questions about how your dad died? I know you were five when it happened and you're now eight and you might have questions um, or our kids are asking more questions or what one of the big things was one of the girls whose dad died by suicide, she didn't know. And she said, mom, people ask me how my dad died and I don't know how he died. And I think that was causing her some distress. Mm -hmm. And it, as you, you can imagine that kids' imagination when they don't know what has happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's reaching all ends of the galaxy of what the possibilities are. And oftentimes their imagined idea is worse than what happened. Mm -hmm. So again, we're paying attention to all of those things, you know, with our volunteers, we do a pre-meeting and a post-meeting to really figure out like, okay, any concerns that you have, anything that you think may come up, you know, in the next two weeks, either with mom or with the child, and we'll, you know, work with them on that as they, as they need. And the, the stigma come up? Absolutely. Um, I think that's probably the number one reason why an, an adult may not share that with their child for reasons that you just said that they're going to view their their dad their brother their sister their mom differently because they know that she chose to end her life and there's also kids who then and i say like they're they own their story and they're, they're proud that they know because when you don't know something and all of a sudden you know something, you feel like I got the golden ticket. Like I know, I know what it is. Yeah. It's obviously still really hard. And one of our nights at Friends Way is dedicated to those who have experienced a loss due to suicide, overdose, or through, through addiction. And we find that stigma obviously exists, but I feel like we're almost in a fairy tale land at Friends Way where it doesn't exist at group. Mm. where people are openly talking about their own mental health issues, their own sobriety, their own struggles to say, I raised four kids, three of my kids, no substance use issues whatsoever. I feel like I failed my, my daughter who, who died by an overdose. I'm, I'm feeling, you know, again, those are the raw feelings that come out in a group setting where they feel supported, they may not share that with their closest friends. They may not share that with, you know, their coworkers or, you know, random people at the grocery store, but they get to be their true authentic self at, mm -hmm. at group. That's awesome. That's really 
Yeah. Yeah. Stigma stinks. We we talk about it almost on every podcast, how it affects whatever, you know, whatever organization we're supporting or promoting. Absolutely. I mean, you can look at obituaries, right? You know, Mary fought 10 years to battle cancer mm -hmm. that she succumbed to surrounded by her family at, at hospice, right? Mm -hmm. Joe died suddenly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Or, you know, you might see further down to say, um, in, you know, in lieu of flowers, you know, donations to Tanami or AFSP or, and then you're kind of like, oh, well, it's a young person. Oh, I'm, I'm assuming already suicide un unless I hear that it was a car accident or was he sick? Like everybody feels like they're entitled to that information, right? Exactly. So right, th there's that stigma of, okay, well, clearly I'm not going to talk to you. Like, why do you want to know this? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. wow. On that stigma. We say, we often comment here that um, no one ever brings a casserole when your family's suffering from mental illness, but right. anything else, the casseroles are piling up in your fridge, you know, yeah. so... Um, so, um, were you, was there an uptick in people reaching out to you during COVID? Um, I could see that going both ways, you know, you're trying to distance and stay home, but also there's a lot of, um, deaths that are really hard to explain. Right. So like the whole world and many other, you know, mm -hmm. organizations, we needed to halt our groups. I, you know, we all had to figure out what to do next and figure out Zoom. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Some of us. So, <laughs> you know, I was, I say, like living at the post office because initially we were mailing things home to our to our kids mm. to say, well, it's one thing, right? You and I, like the three of us, were having a conversation. It feels like we're almost in the same room. You know, we're talking about really important things, really totally preventable things, right? And it's a little bit different when you're talking about grief. It's a little bit different when your kid could be on the other side of the door mm. and you don't have that privacy. And also for kids to keep them entertained for the hour that we usually meet on a screen. Mm with like nothing in front of them was really hard, right? So we sent home Play-Doh and coloring books and things that we were gonna use as like, okay, we're doing a scavenger hunt tonight. We're gonna find all these things. So yes, I mean, we certainly saw initially like either families wanted to stay enrolled virtually, or again, we never knew that we'd still kind of be in this space to know that, well, we'll wait till you're back in person. Mm. Okay don't know when that's going to be so right we were receiving outpours of of calls and emails to say we've experienced a death and we'd be like okay we're meeting on zoom and they were like that's better than nothing right. you know we're already feeling isolated so we were do the intake this way we'd be like okay so we're gonna mail some stuff home to you we'll let you know like what you need each night to you know take out of the bag I say that one of the really just strange pieces was like when we came back to in person for the 
you know, tons of families that we met, they had never been to the building. Mm. Right. Yeah. So you're having to like, oh, yeah, this is <laughs> this is the building that we're usually in. So, you know, here are the bathrooms and here's where we get pizza and here's where we do all this stuff. I mean, so there, again, there was many people that reached out that may not have reached out if we were in person because their comfortability may have been different. I think it benefited some to feel like, you know, I can do this. I don't want to have to. I have social anxiety getting out of the house. I don't want to, you know, interact with too many people, but I can do this. Um, but we also saw a, a, a big decrease in our current families. So we were adding all these new families who didn't know anything different versus, you know, again, if you know you have in-person services and you're like, what are we doing? This is not the same. I'm not doing this. So it was that kind of balance of we're having all these new families come in. And then once we came back to in-person, it was reevaluating like, Hey, you haven't been here in the last year and a half. Do you still wanna? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and we, you know, certainly did see some COVID deaths. I mean, there were several thousand deaths here in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. We weren't seeing as many, um, and you know, not sure how or why that happened. Um, I mean, we have a handful of families affected by a COVID death. Though anybody who's experienced a death during COVID obviously can relate to like not being able to have the full viewing and funeral services and all those things that have happened and, you know, couldn't visit their person in the hospital. And so having all of those, you know, commonalities. Do you still offer any counseling by virtually for people that that's their go-to? We don't. Um, it would just, I mean, with our minimal staff and I think the volunteers are like, we never want to have to do Zoom again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Again, there are some, you know, there's many hospice groups that are offering, you know, virtually. And I think, again, for some people that that works, right? They don't have to leave their home. They don't have to worry about, you know, rain or snow or just traffic that it works, but right now um, we're we're solely offering in-person services. I myself, I'm a person who keeps things pretty close to the chest. I really, you know, I, I since having kids, I've tried to, to break away from that so they can know that it's fine to show their emotions. Mm -hmm. With grief, people show it in so many different ways, but are there, are there any clues or any tips or signals that parents could look for in their youth to see if their child is struggling, you know, because especially with teens or not even with teens, I got kids who aren't teens, but you ask them a question, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And they'll just walk right, right. off. Are there signals? Right. I mean, obviously great question. Um, I get it, you know, more than daily from, from families, right. There's certainly things, I mean, it's going to be based on, I'm assuming you know, not knowing much about the two of you, that the three of us were wired differently. Mm -hmm. Our, you know, obviously our cultural background, our personalities, how we typically interact with the world. And, you know, Greg, if you're saying that you're somebody who kind of keeps things close, if you were to experience a death, whether you are this age or if you were a child, I would expect you to probably behave in that way. That I would expect you to kind of, well, 
this is kind of how I interact with the world. This is kind of how I'm going to acknowledge or not acknowledge my feelings. I'm going to, I'm going to keep everything close, right? Mm -hmm. There's other people who, you know, they've got to shout from the rooftops when they're angry or, or excited or upset or sad. So again, like, to, yeah, that's you. Yep. <laughs> right. So like, I would expect that you would be more verbal about your experience with death and to say, this isn't fair. And, you know, I don't understand why this happened, or I'm going to get really clingy towards, you know, my mom, because my dad died. He was fine. He said, bye, I'll see you later. And then he never came back. He got hit by a car. Right. So now I'm fearful of. So, I mean, there's a lot of kids, teens, as well as adults, just having that hypervigilance of, all right, one thing happened. And now the sky could fall in like anything can happen. So I might not want to go to school because if I stay away, if I, if I can avoid a place, then I'll be okay. So, I mean, it's seeing on, on both ends, right? Like you could see somebody who maybe does average in school and all of a sudden they're, they're getting A's and B's and the parent may be like, wow, that's, that's great. They've, they've never been an AB student. Not to say that it's a negative effect, but like they may feel like I have to focus on something. Mm -hmm. I have to put all of my energy or, you know, or maybe they were told your dad would really want you to do better in school. So maybe they're having that like over their head to say, well, I'm feeling like my dad would maybe be judging me if I wasn't in school. Or you see, you know, the opposite where they're an A student and now they're like, my dad died. Doing math work seems so in insignificant. Mm -hmm. I don't care about anything. And then you see a rapid decline in their school attendance, you know, in their socialization, you know, eating, sleeping habits. I mean, again, just obviously think of anything that causes us stress and where, where we kind of gravitate. Do we, are we overeating? Are we undereating? Are we you know, sleeping more, are we not able to sleep? Um, you know, so all of those things would be predictors of, like you said, something's going on mm -hmm. that kids need to know that there's an identified adult or an identified peer that can help them. It's like, whether it's the school nurse that you kind of check in every day and they understand, like, I know at one o'clock on Fridays, it's kind of hard because you were called down to the office at one o'clock on a Friday to be told that your mom died. Mm -hmm. So anytime you kind of hear your name or, oh my gosh, it's one o'clock, like something could happen. You know, that's their, that's their big fear. Right. So, I mean, like I said, all those things, but, but especially any clingy behaviors are expected. Like all these things are expected. It's not to say, oh my gosh, my kid's not normal. They need to, you know, they need to be fixed. No, they need to be heard. They need to be listened to. They need to be validated to know that what they're feeling is okay. And it's so important for the adults to be able to show emotion in front of the kids. Because mm -hmm. a lot of times the parents will call up and say, you know, my, my kid's not showing any emotion. And, you know, we get more information. And I say, so do you cry in front of your kids? Oh, no, I, I don't want them to know that I'm sad. Mm -hmm. So, well, 
your kid is picking up on that, right? Like you're ideally modeling the behavior that they're expected to see. So what's that showing your six-year-old? Like, mommy's not sad. I guess I'm not supposed to be sad. I guess I'll keep it to myself or I'll cry myself to sleep, but I don't want to, you know, distract her or interrupt her or... I don't want to bring down my mom if she's having a good day and the kid and the parent may be like, I don't want to bring down my kid if they're having a good day too. And it's like, if they could communicate better, I, I keep saying I'd be out of a job. Right. Wow. Can you tell us about Camp Starfish? Sure. So I say with, the, you know, with a little bit of a heavy heart that we started our camp as a result of the station nightclub fire. So now that it's crazy that it was just 20 years ago. So summer of 2003, we held our first camp. And we were only a few years old. We had only started our groups in 2000. So A, for a tragedy to impact our state at that magnitude was significant. And we realized that these kids, you know, they, they need more than you know, our center-based services that we're providing. So again, it's shifted a little bit, our name changed, et cetera. Um, but essentially our camp is a three-day day camp that we give our kids who are ages eight through 14, basically the opportunity to be a kid again. And again, it's not to like, okay, forget about your person or forget about your problems, but we give them the opportunity to have their you know camp experience you know the activities the swimming the archery and all that stuff kind of intersect with the grief component where they obviously all are connected they all participate at friends way on different nights they're getting to meet some kids that they you know maybe only see at camp or they're meeting new kids and it's an opportunity for them to to challenge themselves if they want to physically you know emotionally and mentally to be able to say you know what i've never kayaked before in my life i i, I want to try that out i want to try a climbing tower i want to i want to do this ropes course and really talk about you know some things that are challenging with me and again if, if the three of us were on it we were working together to say you know let's really enhance our teamwork let's enhance our communication and then we go into the arts and crafts area and we're doing a feelings project. We're doing a memory project about our person who died. We want to carry over what we've done on the ropes course or, you know, as we were sailing and to say, you know, Greg, that was so great for you to be able to help. And I didn't, I've never sailed before and I didn't realize you had, and, you know, we have that connection. Then we have another connection. So we're really trying to let kids know that even during grief and sadness, it's still okay to be happy and try new things and challenge yourself. So we're, you know, thrilled to be having our our camp this summer. Um, it's what our volunteers look forward to doing because they also get to see the kids in a totally different element. Mm -hmm. You know, seeing somebody come an hour and a half every other week, hang out with for pizza, you know, do some art, you know, read some some children's books about grief, and then you're like, wow, this kid can really play dodgeball. Like I saw a whole nother side of their smile come out and, you know, he was so proud when he got to the top of that climbing tower or 
he had never done it before and got halfway up and you would have thought he was given like a million dollars. So it's, it's really that opportunity that we look forward to each year to give that summer, you know, experience to our kids, that, that summer camp experience. Now, one thing that I've heard you, you say pretty much throughout this entire interview is, is volunteers. How important are volunteers to Friendsway? Very, we could not do what we do without our volunteers. Um, say many moons ago, I started as a volunteer, um, kind of coming into my 22nd year, uh, being connected to Friendsway. So I volunteered for about 10 and a half years. I've been the program director for about 11 and a half. So our volunteers are the people who are leading the groups and we get all walks of life. Um, I say our, our youngest is around, you know, 18, 19, you know, some freshmen, sophomores in college. Our oldest is almost 99. Obviously she's on the, on the very high end. Um, but I mean, we, we have everybody else that kind of falls in the middle. We've got, you know, bankers and teachers and, you know, some clinicians say, I love what I do for my work. And I feel like adding a volunteer experience of working in a group setting with kids who have experienced grief may help me in my practice. Some of our volunteers received services from us years ago. So I always say that that's like, I don't think you can get a better testament to our program to know that if you went through our program as a child or a teen or even as an adult to say, you know, now that we've left Friends Way, I think I want to I want to give back because our our kids that we have in our groups, they aspire to be a volunteer. They want to be that person to help those kids. They don't want my job. At least I don't think they want my job, <laughs> um, but they want to be able to say, you know what, this program helped me and I want it to, to help. So, I mean, our volunteers go through a training. Obviously, uh, we've got an upcoming training in, in March and April where we're covering a variety of topics. They need to be at all all the sessions. You know, we're talking about certainly some history about the organization, touching on grief and loss, as well as understanding developmentally what kids are gonna understand at different ages and stages in their development. Because knowing that a five-year-old is gonna understand something very different than a 12-year-old versus an 18-year-old. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how to best talk and listen and facilitate a lot of our work is really paying attention to the nonverbal and hearing the things that are unspoken, but given off in body language. We're sharing and talking about how trauma impacts the grieving process, especially if it's a suicide, an overdose or a homicide, like just what that family may be experiencing and what may have come, you know, years and months prior to the death. Talk about how spirituality may impact the grieving process. And where we do a lot of expressive artwork, we encourage our volunteers during our training to partake in their own experiential process to just understand what the kids go through. You know, one of our volunteers facilitates that. And we also have an opportunity to say, you know what? We know you're here for the kids and the teens as well as the adults. This training is here for you. So you may have a loss that's impacted you that's bringing you to want to volunteer here. Let's take a few minutes. You know, if you have a picture you want to share, let's let's kind of talk about that. So you're acknowledging 
what it's like for these kids to have to think about, I have to bring in a picture. Oh my, like what picture do I bring in? Like I'm, I'm scrambling or just what it's like. And there's so many people that are like, you know, my mom died 20 years ago and I can tell anybody anything, anytime coming here and having to do that. She's like, volunteers go through all of that process and then they get to observe a couple of nights to figure out is this something you know which age group do i want to be in do i want to be with the preschoolers do i want elementary middle school high school or i'm with adults all day but maybe that's kind of my jam and maybe i want to facilitate the adult group and hear how the adults are just manifesting their grief and what's coming out for their kids and you know, some of our adult facilitators may also be a bereaved parent or child. And to say, you know what, this would have been helpful if I was a kid, you know, at, at this particular juncture, or, you know, it, it's paying attention to all the themes that are being brought up to kind of connect everybody to say, wow, everybody's kind of wondering what they're going to do for, for the summer. I'm wondering, you know, do we get a communication tree going so that you guys can stay in contact, you know, throughout the summer or do we schedule some get togethers or you need a babysitter? Your daughters said that they would, you know, help, help each other out. Like there's connections being formed all the time. Mm -hmm. So again, we couldn't do what we do without our volunteers. Each time we've added a different program night, it's like, well, we can do it if we have the volunteers, if not, we can't do that. <laughs> right. Do you have other opportunities for volunteers besides running groups? Like if that's just too heavy or too much for somebody, is there? A... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have other folks that come in to help serve our pizza and salad. And it is not overlooked as a, you know, an unimportant job because it allows our volunteers to socialize and mingle with their kids, teens and adults. So our couple volunteers come in each night for about an hour to, you know, just kind of portion out salads, pour drinks, wait for pizza to arrive and then portion that out and, you know, interact and smile as the kids are coming up to receive their pizza. Um, even if, you know, that's not something people want to do. I mean, there's always organization or I say office work, but it'd be more, you know, cleaning or organizing a closet or, you know, different things. And there's no training involved in that. Like if you want to come out and say, Hey, I've got some hours, I can wipe down tables. I can clean off chalkboard walls. I can do those things. Or, you know, we have special events that come up to say, yeah, I'd be able to help solicit some silent auction items or participate day of. Um, so again, there's always an opportunity to, to help out. Um, and all of our information, contact info, is on our website at friendsway.org. So that was right into what I was about to ask. <laughs> so for volunteers who who um, want to be involved, you just mentioned your website. I'll ask you to mention that again in a moment. But can you tell us um, your sessions and when uh, your your groups are? Sure. So our groups meet on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. So again, for a family or a volunteer who is coming, they don't come to all of them. They choose the one that is is best for them. So we're not asking for a three week, uh, th three day a week commitment. And 
you know, there's again, different families and different volunteers on each of the nights. So we start our evening with our volunteers around six. So we're doing our pre-meeting, talking about first off, how everybody's doing for the night, have everybody do a check-in. We'll introduce any new families as well as talk about the expressive arts that are happening for the night. 6.30 is when our families arrive, where we have our very busy and chaotic and boisterous half hour of dinner. And then at seven o'clock, our kids groups head downstairs in our building. So like I said, preschool through high school are meeting downstairs. The adult group meets upstairs. And then at 8.10, we end our evening, kids come back up, we rejoin, say goodnight all together. Our groups meet every other week throughout the school year. Um, we take a break over the school vacations and major holidays. And certainly if there's ever gonna be snow here in Rhode Island to impact a, a no school day, um, we would not meet on those nights, obviously for you know weather related reasons. Yeah. Um, so like I said, we meet throughout the school year, um, basically meeting about 18 times September through June. And then again, at the end of the evening, the volunteers stay to do a debriefing share and talk about common themes that came up, any specific concerns, as well as certainly for our new folks to say, you know, Greg, this was your first time tonight. What were you expecting? How did it go? Do we scare you off or do you want to return to, you know, check out another group of preschoolers? Or are you like, I might have a hard time getting up and down off the floor all those times, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, for our volunteers, we ask for a, a a year commitment. I mean, many have stayed much longer, but um, that's I say in short what you know what our what our program consists of. And is that year the a school year or is that a actual fiscal year? I mean, the school year. So September through June. Um, then we do our three day camp in July, and you know our program staff, myself and Molly, we're available in the summer. I mean, we're meeting new families. We're you know getting our building ready. We're you know, sometimes doing a volunteer training in the summer. Um, so again, we're employed year round. All right. This has been um, amazing. I'm so glad Friends Way is in Rhode Island and Southern New England <laughs> yeah, to help um, help our kids and families out. Thank you for all you do. And one more time, can you give us that, that contact information? Yes. So our website is friendsway.org. And uh, main number for us is 401-921-0980. Thank you. This is great. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ryan. It was great to meet you. Well, thank you for having us. We're always looking to get the word out about our services. I think a lot of times people are shying away from talking about really, really hard stuff. And certainly what you folks are doing at Totally Preventable to say, you know what, we have to have this conversation. If we're not, we're doing a disservice to, you know, to our kids, to, you know, to, to us, right? We've got to talk about mental health. We've got to talk about addiction. We've got to talk about death. We've got to talk about um, these things so that we're sharing more. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I thank you for all the work that you're doing. I know that you're a, a lot of people. I mean, the testament of your yourself being a volunteer for so many years and now on staff, means that you're very, very vested in the work and you know that this this is something that we need to be doing. So I greatly appreciate the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank Take care. You. I'm Polly and you've just listened to Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable. Totally Preventable.